You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, this morning we look, remember, at what I suppose we considered to be the greatest challenge that Elijah faced, and that was when all the people of Israel were called together to Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal were up at the front, and there was this contest between good and evil, between Baal and God, as who was able to ignite the sacrifice, and that the one who was able to do that, then they were to be considered the one and true God. And of course, uh, Baal failed completely, and Elijah giving every opportunity for the sacrifice not to be ignited by pouring water onto it on continuous occasions. Of course, immediately it ignited, and the people uh, responded by recognizing that the Lord, he was the one and the true God. And so that's where uh, we, we arrived at this morning. But after this particular victory at Carmel, we see that Elijah possibly had great hopes for an immediate revival in Israel. The people had responded positively to all that God had wanted them to do in meeting together on that occasion. And of course, you can expect that Ahab was desperately rejected, and his wife Jezebel was furious. And Elijah, what did he do? In order to try and, as it were, pour oil in troubled waters, he encouraged the king to return to his royal tent and regain his emotional strength And he said that very soon that there would be rain upon the land. Remember, there'd been three and a half years where there'd been no rain. Everybody was in a a state of concern because of the famine that was ravaging the land, and no more so than the king himself, who last week we saw had sent out Obadiah to look uh, for Elijah and for the horses and other people to look for Elijah. And now the situation was that the drought was over. And... uh, If we skip on just from uh, Ahab for a moment to Jezebel, uh, what was her uh, reaction to all this? Well, as I said, she was angry, uh, but we discover that Ahab did not stand up against her, and Elijah took a very positive action. And she said that in her fury uh, and in her intensity of enthusiasm to make sure that Elijah was killed, she said that within 24 hours, uh, that boy who did that, will be killed. And immediately we see that Elijah responded with intense fear. He should have asked himself the question, was God, is God not able to protect me from this woman after all that people have seen that God has done? But as James 5 and 17 that we've quoted before said, Elijah was a man just like us. He lost perspective. He entered into a state of deep depression and it was so severe that he wanted to die. Now, this evening, for a few minutes, I want us to look at three things about Elijah, and we'll uh, outline what they are. The first one was the, the desperate condition in which Elijah found himself. And then secondly, what led to the state of upset, depression, and breakdown? And thirdly, what was the remedy that God prescribed? So first of all, the desperate condition in which Elijah found himself. Elijah had been living, I suppose, to some degree, we could say, on a limited diet. He had experienced the agony of people dying, of the cattle around him dying. He'd experienced the great tension that he must have had when he had mounted Mount Carmel 
to face all these prophets of Baal. He had prayed intensely that it would rain. At that point, it just was about to rain. It just hadn't quite rained. And he was now being hunted down by Jezebel. And the view was that he would be killed, as I've said, within 24 hours. And so with all this pressure mounting, not only from one particular level, but at so many levels, you can imagine his condition was desperate. And let's examine for a moment his state of mind. He was overcome by fear and alarm. The courageous man of 1 Kings 18 that we've mentioned this morning, when he summoned the people of Israel to Carmel, now was running for his life. Fear, as someone once said, is a monster. It can harm us physically, mentally, and spiritually. And it often comes to us in the midst of exhaustion. His state of mind. We see that not only was he fearful, but he was unable to bear the presence of a servant. When Elijah fled to Beersheba, he left his servant. And he wanted to self-isolate. Even his own servant seemed to irritate him, and he wanted to be away from him. And sometimes it's true to say when people are overstrained and exhausted, uh, they want to just simply get away, and they don't even want the bother of other people around them, even those who are closest to us. And very often they can get the brunt of our concerns and our fears. And that's exactly what happened as far as Elijah was concerned. His servant, he didn't want him near him. The next thing was he was overwhelmed with despondency, depression, and despair. He sat under a juniper tree. He was at what you might call today Wits End Corner. He was in a very dark place. There was a dark tunnel in his life, and he was totally and completely and utterly downcast. And not only was he overwhelmed with depression, but he was unwise in his praying. He was at the point of suicidal despair. He prayed, it is enough, O Lord, take away my life from me, for I am no better than my father's. He wanted to escape from the reality of the situation that there was around him at that particular moment. But at that time, we have got to be sympathetic to him, and we've got to understand that in his mental state that he found himself in at that particular time, I suppose the best way to put it was he was ill. He needed to be loved, to be cared for. He needed to find others around him who would help him in the condition that he faced. But not only was he unwise in his praying, but we discover that he was full of self-pity. Things had totally and completely and utterly got out of perspective. Little problems were exaggerated. It said, I have been zealous for the Lord God of Israel. I, I, they have forsaken your covenants, and I'm the only one that's left. And that's what he said. And of course, it was an absolute nonsense. It was a nonsense because you remember uh, last week when we were looking in the evening at Obadiah, one of the things that Obadiah did was that Obadiah rounded up a number of the Lord's pre uh, uh, prophets and he took them and he hid them in groups of 50 in two different caves. So at least to start with, there was 100 people. But then we also read that God pointed out to him 
that there were 7,000 people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And uh, as a result of that, he basically was completely unwise in what he was saying. He had lost it completely because he thought he was the only one who was standing up for God, but yet God had to point out that there were many, many others around him. And think of all the people who on Mount Carmel acknowledged that the Lord, he was God. And so he told him to go and anoint uh, an individual as the king of Israel, and he was to go and anoint uh, a successor for him to be a prophet. But that will come in a moment. But temporarily, we could say that in all these things, what he did was he lost his faith in God. He was not trusting God in this emergency that he had at that particular time. He was suffering, I suppose, to put it in modern terminology. He was suffering from a nervous breakdown and everything in his life at that stage was out of perspective. So let's ask the question, then, what led to this state of depression and breakdown? Because there had been many months, I suppose a summary of the answer to that is there had been many months of stress, and he was upset, and he was overstrained in three ways. First of all, he was overstrained mentally. For three and a half years, he'd been living on the edge. Remember, it was he who God had called to go and initially confront King Ahab with the situation in his land, that the people of Israel had departed, that God's judgment was going to come upon the people, and that it was he who had to walk into the court of the king and say that for three and a half years, there's going to be no rain. He had the task of, that was one thing. Also, as time went on, and as Carmel uh, showed us, he had the task also of ridding the land of the false prophets. And now Jezebel was out to kill him. And I suppose in terms of stress level, his stress level was at an all-time high. And as a result, he was at breaking point. And the last thing that he needed was to hear that somebody was out to take his life. And the last thing also he needed, interestingly enough, was for somebody to come alongside him and basically say, pull yourself together, Elijah. Get a grip on life and, and go on. He didn't need that particular uh, sit, uh, comment and counsel at that time because he was overstrained mentally. And he was completely exhausted physically. After Carmel, if you were to read between what we did this morning and what we're doing this evening, if you are to read after Carmel, he had an 18-mile run to escape from Jezebel. And on top of Carmel, all, there was all that had gone before. Not only that event that we talked about this morning, but there was the exhaustion that he experienced with life during, as we've already said, during the time of the, of the famine. And he had been, what I suppose in terms today, we would say was he was burning the candle at both ends. And while it was important for him to remain enthusiastic, Nevertheless, at this point, he had gone too far as far as his health was concerned. And, of course, we need to apply that to ourselves at times. Uh, you know, in life, isn't it true to say that very often we can be exhausted physically? And you hear people say, you know, I'd rather burn out than rust out. 
but uh, we need to be sensible uh, in, in what we do. We need a time of rest and relaxation, uh, as we'll see in a moment or two. But as far as he's concerned, he hadn't had that opportunity up to now. And he was completely and totally and utterly exhausted physically. And also, we read that he was out of touch spiritually. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19 tells us of Jezebel's intention and Elijah's response. He was afraid. The one who had stood on top of Mount Carmel, the one who had been sure that God was with him at that particular time, who couldn't have said a word about God. God had done all that he had promised and that Elijah had experienced it and all the people had acknowledged it, as we've said. We see that for some reason or another, he started to doubt the hand of God. And so where do we go from here? He had basically taken his eyes off the Lord. And I suppose it's very easy when things don't go the way we want, or maybe when one thing after another happens, you know, then we tend to start and question, what's that saying, you know, about, uh, you know, you're waiting for a bus and no bus comes, and then about 10 buses come all at the one time. And in some respects, that's what was happening to him. There was all these things were mounting up at the one time. And he was in a state of physical and spiritual collapse, mentally and in every other way. So we've painted the picture about what the situation was in Elijah's life at that particular time. But let's look at the remedy that was prescribed Elijah, remember, was exhausted physically. He needed to rest his body. And three things were prescribed. Number one, regular and nourishing food. He wasn't told to go to a prayer meeting. He wasn't told to get down his knees and pray for two hours or anything like that. No, what was the problem and how was the problem addressed by God at that particular time? Get some regular food. Secondly, get some sufficient sleep and get some fresh air and exercise and relaxation. Just simple things that have nothing to do with, I suppose, what we would call spiritual things. Get, get yourself eating properly, get yourself sleeping properly, and give yourself fresh air and exercise and relax. And that was God's prescribed answer at that particular time to Elijah's depression. And we're told that he, as a result of that, he lay down under a juniper tree. And when he was under the juniper tree and he was sleeping, an angel came and touched him and said, right, you've slept for a while, now eat for a while. And then he lay down again. And then the angel came back again and said, right, eat again, because the journey will be too great for you. And after he had eaten, after he had rested, he was, and that lasted for 40 days, mark you. Then there was a journey that he was to travel. And God, after that journey, was going to put Elijah in a position where he could be up and running again and he would be free from the physical exhaustion and all that the problem was. But we see that as far as the remedy was concerned, Elijah was physically exhausted and that was what God's prescribed and the other thing about Elijah was he was 
overstrained mentally. His mental outlook was distorted and unbalanced, and it took six weeks of good food, fresh air, and care and rest. And then God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And God's idea was that Elijah wasn't to stay in that situation forever, that he was to get up and go on. And he, had, having confronted his problems and having listened to God's prescription for a remedy, then we're told that he was to move on. And we are not told that the Lord spoke any words of rebuke to Elijah over all this. What he did was not uh, in any way to upset Elijah any further. But God gave Elijah at that time a fresh revelation of himself. And at that point, Elijah realized that God understood him, that God loved him, and that God wanted to help him. And possibly Elijah's inner thought was, well, what am I doing here sitting about? It's time that I moved on. And that's exactly what God wanted him to do. And as a result of that, we discover that at the end result of all that was he was touched spiritually. God dealt with Elijah's soul. He gave him a vision of his power and his glory and his tenderness. And what did he tell, what did God tell Elijah to do? He said, go to the mountain. And God went, or Elijah went to the mountain and we're told that there was this strong wind and it was so strong that it rent the mountains and it broke the rocks. But we're told in the Bible that as he stood and as he looked and as he experienced this, that God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake. Think of an earthquake. Certainly if we experienced an earthquake this evening here, we would be absolutely uh, shattered and worried and concerned because we don't know much about earthquakes over here. But there was an earthquake. But he probably thought, this is God coming with a, a huge noise and a, a, a rumbling of the earth in order to speak to me afresh. But God was not in the earthquake. Then he saw the fire. He thought, surely God's in the fire. And you remember how God spoke to Moses through the fire. And God could speak, and fire is a, a picture at times of, of the presence of God. But, but God was not in the fire. And then in his inner mind, there was a still spoiled voice. He was still standing at the entrance to the cave. And God said to him, go and return on your way. And God was speaking to Elijah, tenderly reassuring him with patience and tenderness. Go back and anoint Yehu, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to be your successor. He saw, as it were, light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, there was to be a new king in Israel who probably would start off uh, with the nation and take them in a much better direction than they had, obviously, under previous monarchs over those past uh, few uh, decades. But also, he was to appoint Elisha, who was going to take over his mantle, and he was going to succeed him. Now, Elijah was going to be told, right, you've done your bit. I wanted you for a particular purpose. I wanted you to, 
to go to Ahab. I wanted you to uh, be there for the period of the drought. I wanted you to confront the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and it has been a tremendous job that you've done. But now it's time for you to step back and let somebody take over. You see, we can say that in some respects that Elijah fell. He experienced doubt. Maybe we could say he backslid. But always remember, and he needed to learn this and did learn this, that failure is not final. The devil will try, when he pulls us down, whatever the circumstances, he will try to make Christians feel you failed. You've let the Lord down. And yes, there are times when all of us let the Lord down. We all feel. And so often we've got to remember that when we turn to the New Testament in particular, we notice that there are a number of people who failed. And what was the end result of their failure? Well, take, for example, the collective group of the disciples. They failed. They scattered, remember, after Jesus had been arrested. And they went their separate ways for fear that the same fate might befall them as had befallen Jesus. You remember then, in particular, we're reminded of Thomas, that after the resurrection, Thomas came, and when Jesus, uh, initially he missed Jesus, but eventually when Jesus came, you remember what he said, unless I can put my finger into the nail prints in his hands, uh, and unless I can touch his side, I will not believe. Yet Thomas failed, Thomas doubted. But Thomas was restored. And probably one of the greatest failures of all in the apostolic band, of course, was Peter. Peter, who said he would never deny Jesus Christ. But he went out and did the wrong thing. He fouled it up. But then, after the resurrection, and when Jesus told the angels to go and tell the disciples that he had risen, and pinpointed Peter in particular, and Peter was told, then we, t we read that when, when Peter came back to Jesus, Jesus on three occasions asked him, did he love him? But Peter was restored. And there are countless people throughout the scriptures, and they have been restored. I remember telling you one evening before about being at a conference that was, uh, the chief speaker was a man who was an international uh, Christian speaker. And in life, he became a moral casualty and he had to step back from ministry for quite some period of time. A man who, whose books, I'm sure some of you have even read. And uh, eventually, he was restored back. The Christian community realized that he had made a mistake, a vital mistake, but he confessed, and he was back to where he, he was and was back on, on the preaching around uh, throughout the United States and throughout the world. And the point is that when we do fail, failure is not final. It's only final if we continue to fail. It's only final if we don't recognize the failure. It's only final if we don't confess our sin. But when we see our failure and take steps to eradicate our failure and confess our failure, then we have moved from what you might in old-fashioned terms move from what's considered to be a backslidden state to be a state where you can be used effectively by God in the future. 
He shows we come this evening. Let's just think about Elijah. He was a man like you and me. He was worried. He was concerned. He had a mental breakdown. He prayed things that he shouldn't have prayed, that he should die. And he fouled it up in so many ways. Despite the blessings that he had experienced previously from God. But God didn't let him go. God didn't let him wallow in his self-pity and his failure forever. And there was that opportunity for him to come back. And he had to take practical steps of getting rid of the tiredness and, and he hadn't eaten properly and, and all the things that were just natural that very often come our way. And after all that happened, he was back in a place where God used him. And God said, right, you've done your bit. I want you to hand over to Elisha. And he just did that. Maybe there are some of us this evening. And maybe we're not where we once were as Christians, where we believe that we should be. And surely as we come to study Elijah, we can see in Elijah that, as I've said the phrase before, failure is not final. That there can be a fresh start, there can be a new start. And as we ask God for forgiveness and take stock of our lives and say, well, I've been going down that road and that's not the right road. The Word of God teaches me I should be going down this way. And when we go down that second route, that alternative route, that new route, that right route, then we can know God's blessing and we can be a significant uh, servant of His in the future. Let's pray together. Thank you.